to Forward Focus. My name is McLean Bryant-Macklin, and I'm the Director of Policy and Strategic Initiatives at Health Forward Foundation. This is the last episode of our policy podcast series. In prior episodes, we discussed Medicaid expansion in both Missouri and Kansas, as well as digital health equity and telehealth equity. In this final episode, we'll be talking about the need for public health data disaggregation. COVID-19 presented a public health crisis on a level previously unknown by most people alive during this time. Some have called it the great public health equalizer because it has touched each and every one of us and no one is immune. But it pretty quickly became clear that COVID-19 was impacting some communities more than others. The data that existed early on showed that communities of color, individuals with certain pre-existing medical conditions, and low-income communities in rural and urban areas were being hit harder by the pandemic's impacts on health and economics. Health Forward, along with El Centro and the Urban League of Greater Kansas City, sent letters last spring to both Governor Kelly and Governor Parson advocating that public health data during the pandemic and more broadly ought to be mandatorily disaggregated by race, ethnicity, and zip code so the disparities can be identified and resolved through the targeted allocation of resources into communities and areas of greatest need. The lack of disaggregated data is not only an issue here, however, it is also an issue of national and international scale. The Tri-Caucus of Black, Hispanic, and Asian-American caucuses of the federal legislature also implored the CDC to mandate data disaggregation by race and ethnicity last year. President Biden's Health Equity Task Force has also received testimony recommending the mandatory collection and public availability of disaggregated public health data. So we are not alone in this fight. This issue is pervasive, and in today's data-driven society, its solution is and should be widely supported. This session, we worked with Missouri State Senator Barbara Ann Washington to introduce a bill that would require public health data disaggregation. The bill would have required the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, local public health departments, all healthcare institutions, and all laboratories to collect and make publicly available demographic data broken down by race, ethnicity, primary language, gender identity, age, disability status, and socioeconomic status. The first person we'll be speaking with today is Julianne Van Loo, Director of the Unified Government Public Health Department. Hi, Julianne. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I'd like to take a moment just so we can hear a little more about you. Uh, you're the Public Health Director for Wyandotte County. What does that mean and what does your job entail? Gosh, um, it means the buck stops with me, I suppose. Um, I just moved into this role about a year ago. Um, so I have the opportunity to really kind of strategically make sure that our health department is moving in the right direction, that we're responding to public health in the 21st century, so to speak, and that we are focused on things beyond just COVID. But of course, I'm, I'm in charge of our, our overall COVID response as well. So you really have a, a bird's eye view in all things public health. Uh, we're really focused on health equity and health forward and have been paying close attention to the inequities that have emerged and been heightened by the pandemic. Some of these inequities have to do with the availability of public health data, uh, data that is not aggregated by race, ethnicity, zip code, or a whole host of other qualifiers can create problems in trying to address our public health. And, and many of our listeners probably don't understand why this is important and why uh, disaggregated data is critical to measured public health responses. Some of them might not even be aware of public health disparities or may not have been aware uh, until the pandemic hit. 
in the Kansas City region and in Wyandotte County specifically, where you are, the pandemic disparities were very stark. We saw the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, and we were hoping that you can provide us with a little context and, and break that down for us. Sure. So, you know, we knew as soon as kind of COVID cases started being reported in the United States that Wyandotte County would be hit hard. And we knew that because we start from a place of just poor health outcomes across the board in this county, unfortunately. We've got a lot of higher rates of disease burden um, throughout the county, but especially higher rates of disease burden among our Black population, among our Latinx population, and a number of other minorities. But it's really not even the health outcomes that we were most worried about going into the pandemic. It's the social factors and the social determinants of health that we knew were going to really exacerbate kind of existing problems when it came to confronting COVID. And so it's the fact that higher numbers of our folks in our county uh, face housing instability, face food insecurity, um, the fact that we have high rates of violent crime and distrust in our community, um, the fact that 23% of our kids don't make it through high school and have a hard time finding employment that can actually put a roof over their head and food on their table. And so it's that starting place of, of where our community began going into the pandemic that we knew was going to really make us um, vulnerable um, in, in a lot of ways to the pandemic. And if we could just dial it back a bit, because I think um, some additional context would be helpful for, for listeners. Can you describe for us how um, public health data had been collected prior to the pandemic? Uh, describe the data flow, who was responsible for collecting the data and how, and what is missing from the data and what's the issue with how public health data had been collected? Sure. So reportable disease data. So these are diseases, there's a long list that's pushed out by the state health department and that's standard practice of what are called reportable conditions. And those are conditions that healthcare providers, laboratories, and others are required to report to the state within 24 hours of that result coming through. Um, that's standard practice. It's been that way for many years. Um, and the way it works is that a local healthcare provider, a hospital, an FQHC, or a lab reports those directly to the state itself, not to the local health department. And then eventually the state gets that into their system and allows us to view that data uh, just for our county only, not for surrounding counties, but for those who provide an address uh, in Wyandotte County. But I want to pop back to kind of a, an earlier question just real quick in terms of why it's important that we get access to this data at a granular level, because uh, I know that's kind of the context of this conversation. And I just want to make sure people understand going into this that the, the work of public health will always be so much bigger than the resources we have to do that work will be. And so when we're talking about why it's important to have this disaggregated data, this data down past the zip code, quite frankly, to the census tract and the neighborhood level, of course, race and ethnicity data and a host of other demographic factors, it's because I don't have an endless supply of resources. So I have to decide every single day how to make decisions and how to deploy my resources effectively. And if I don't have disaggregated data telling me where the highest need is or the highest burden of disease is, then I don't know where to deploy the limited resources that I have in order to most effectively combat a burden of disease like COVID-19. Yeah, we appreciate that because that that is certainly why we're even having this discussion today is because we wanted to highlight this issue that is is not commonly known or understood by by most people. Um, and in that lack of understanding, it's, it's, it's difficult to um, really appreciate the limitations that the available data places on people like you who are responsible for, you know, measured uh, public health responses in, you know, an absence of 
sufficient resources. And, you know, we've known that the public health system in the U.S. has been challenged for a while, and the pandemic just highlighted those challenges. And and we appreciate you for really describing those for us. Uh, Have you all made any changes at the county level to ensure that data collection is strengthened to respond to disparities and outcomes in public health emergencies now and into the future? So we were able to nudge along with a lot of other folks in the state, the state health departments partway through the pandemic to require race and ethnic data be reported with reportable conditions. So not just COVID-19, which is great, all reportable conditions. So that is a requirement now in Wyandotte County and in the state of Kansas. Um, but really that's only the very first tiny step and the very first piece of a much larger puzzle because you can mandate something and require it. And that does not necessarily mean you're gonna get what you need. And so problem here is just requiring that to be reported doesn't do a whole lot oftentimes. The, the reality on the ground, and especially during COVID-19, is that these providers were incredibly overwhelmed. For many of them, it was the first time they were reporting reportable conditions. Um, and so just having the requirement there doesn't translate to them being able to give that data. A, because maybe it wasn't uh, part of their EMR workflow in some way, shape, or form. B, because they had hired brand new staff to do data entry who were also brand new at this reporting. Um, So I want to make it clear that having that requirement in place doesn't get you very far. What gets you farther is technical assistance with these local providers, especially the small clinics. What gets you farther is relationship building, you know, with the executive directors in these in these clinics to help them really understand the importance of this data collection. And what gets you farther is having staff time at the state health department and local health departments to be able to provide that assistance to those clinical providers to help them get there because they want to get there. And we need to make sure not to demonize those clinical providers because they want to provide the right data. They just don't always have the resources to do so. And you touched a bit on this in, in your response, but we really want to get some clarity around uh, what we at Health Forward can do and what our listeners can do in terms of advocacy for policy changes uh, related to uh, public health data desegregation. So what local, state, or national policies do we need to have in place to strengthen our public health data? and related health data systems so that they work better to ensure equitable outcomes for everyone. So there's there's a policy piece and I do feel we're making some some kind of headway on that. I think the larger question is the resource question. So part of the reason why we we are where we are at the end, not at the end, but at this point in the pandemic in terms of the data is the failure to invest the necessary literal billions of dollars into the public health technological infrastructure. And so when you're talking about decades and decades of disinvestment in public health, what that leaves you with are these dinosaur systems that don't talk to each other. And so there's no funding available for clinics to uh, build new electronic medical records that will talk to one another. The fact that the Kansas Health Department um, data surveillance system doesn't speak to the Missouri disease surveillance system is a massive problem. And so, yes, they need that mandate from their legislatures. They need that policy that requires them to speak to one another. But then they have to be funded to be able to create that actual infrastructure. So last question, and I I think that this is, you know, an important one. And and really the reason why we wanted to speak with you specifically today is because you can, like you said, bring it down to the ground level uh, and the lived experience of, you know, public health administrator like yourself and, and the work that you have to do every day on behalf of people, but also the experiences of um, those that you serve, residents like you know me and our listeners. How could having uh, data disaggregated by you know race, ethnicity, zip code, census tract, what have you, have helped you to better respond uh, to the pandemic in terms of 
you know, vaccinations or uh, transportation to vaccination sites or uh, treatment or testing or the whole gamut of issues that we saw during the pandemic? Sure. Again, it, it goes back to two things. It goes back to resource allocation and it goes to how, back to the removal or the breakdown of barriers. And so what we have prioritized in Wyandotte County as a health department during the pandemic is to do everything in our power to meet our residents where they are. But I can't do that if I don't know where to go. I can't show up and bring testing on the spot to a particular neighborhood on that street corner in a trusted church if I don't know that that neighborhood is really lacking testing. And I don't know if that neighborhood is really lacking testing unless I can see that the rate of testing there is substantially lower than surrounding neighborhoods. So again, I have to know where to be able to deploy my team. I have three mobile vaccine teams right now that are up and running and ready to respond to anybody in the county who wants us to come on site and provide vaccines. If I don't know which neighborhoods those are, if I don't know which demographics those are that need those the most, then I don't know to deploy those resources that I do have to use them most effectively. And so we have to have, and I, I think a big thing for us is we have to start to man um, data below the zip code level. Zip code does not tell me very much. Zip codes are large. And so for me to be able to deploy resources, even into 66101, which we know is one of our most vulnerable uh, zip codes, that's not that helpful because there's a lot of census tracts, there's a lot of neighborhoods in that area, and I need to be able to get much more granular. I need to be able to bring my resources down to the block level uh, to where people need them the most. Thank you so much, Julianne, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, we, in this policy podcast series, are really trying to highlight uh, not only the issues of today, but the issues that uh, existed before the pandemic and will continue to exist uh, absent our, our focus on addressing them. And so appreciate you shedding some light on the importance for uh, having disaggregated data. Thank you. Thanks, Fane. Appreciate the time. Our second guest on this episode is Senator Barbara Washington, representing the 9th Senate District in Missouri. Senator Washington, I first want to thank you for all the work you do on our behalf in, in Jefferson City. Uh, for those who are listening who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do as a state senator? Yes, yeah, so my name is Barbara Ann Washington. I am a Kansas City native. I've been here all of my 53 years and lived the majority of my life in the 9th District, um, except for our college and internships. Um, I have currently serve as the senator for the 9th Senatorial District, which covers Jackson County, um, south, uh, Kansas City, half of Kansas City, south of the river, a little bit of Independence, a little bit of Raytown, and a real snippet of John Knox Village and Lee Summit. Uh, here at the Senate, I mean, our job is real basic. People always ask, what do you do? We make the laws for the state of Missouri. It's just as basic as that. Um, the state runs on statutes. Those statutes flow down to uh, ordinances in our cities and counties, but those come from the state uh, as our law supersedes anything locally. We invited you on specifically because the work that you are doing on the state level around disaggregating public health data, and we were happy to work with you in putting together uh, this bill um, and advocating uh, for its passage. Uh, but can you tell us uh, about your support of Senate Bill 543 and why you were willing to introduce it? Well, one, um, I, m many people don't know I have an MBA with a healthcare concentration. I don't use it. But um, I also have a big passion for the health mentally and physically of our community. Um, and I see where our public health is crucial. 
Um, I've fought for funding for public health since I've been here. And part of what will help us get better um, as a total community is to know where the gaps are. So this, um, especially with respect to COVID, to know where the gaps are so that organizations like Health Forward and other um, organizations can know where to, where to fill in the gaps and what work needs to be done. So I was happy to work with you all in presenting House uh, Senate Bill, I'm still used to saying House, uh, Senate Bill 543, because it would only um, benefit overall and how we get over this crisis and how we get over future crises um, by knowing um, who's getting vaccinated, who actually was getting tested, <clears throat> the when, the why, and the where. In Kansas City, in the Kansas City region and, and the areas around Kansas City that you represent, what were some of the negative consequences that you saw uh, here or elsewhere in the state of not having disaggregated public health data related to the disparities and the impacts of COVID-19? Um, I will say, and this probably isn't the most positive or politically correct thing to say, but I will say that there were several opportunities in the ninth district to get your vaccinations and we weren't um, showing up. So that meant that people who didn't live in our district, which I don't, um, begrudge them, but they were smart enough, if that's what you want to do, they were um, cognizant in coming to our community to get vaccinations. So one, it led to not being um, vaccinations for our for the people that I serve in the ninth district, but also it leaves um, people vulnerable to getting COVID, getting the disease and not knowing where to go. So with respect to the vaccinations, I think um, our um, community is not as um, computer um, accessible as others. Um, they will do social media, but like they're not checking emails and that sort of thing, which is kind of where the information, how the information was disseminated. So for me, um, I personally had COVID. I still have um, small um, effects. People don't know um, what to do uh, or where to go. And so those who are um, have less access to getting to vaccinations and less knowledge um, tend to be the people that are poorer and minorities. And that's why this type of data would be helpful to know exactly who is getting it so we know who to outreach to, to go make sure that those people are at least made aware of the opportunity to get vaccinated. Thank you. Yeah, the the issues that uh, lead to disparities are, are, are so multifaceted, as you said. And um, first, we need to be able to identify who are facing the disparate impacts with the data, and then we're able to curtail, you know, our messaging and treatment methods, what have you, uh, whatever resources we need to bring to bear uh, to the particular needs of, of those folks that are that are facing those disparities. So we appreciate you for shedding uh, light on that. Um, when you introduced the bill. Um, what did you think were the prospects of it being adopted? Did you think that because we're in the middle of a pandemic, it would be easier or did you think it would be uh, difficult because of, you know, the climate and makeup of the legislature or, or just let us know what you assessed at the time that you introduced the bill? The climate here is not one that um, is open minded to all of the population of the state of Missouri. So to disaggregate this information is not just to identify people of color. It also will disaggregate by zip codes and um, rural, suburban, urban, um, and show um, a larger, a larger uh, identify larger needs. 
many people don't realize that our rural hospitals lack the, our, in fact, we don't have as many rural hospitals as we had, say, 10 years ago, and that this information would help those rural communities as well. Um, so with that, one, you're in a climate where some people don't feel that COVID exists. Um, there was more fighting to um, not wear a mask than there was for um, anything else here this year. Secondly, those same people fighting, which is ironic to me, were the first ones that made sure that they got the shot. <laughs> so that, that, that irony doesn't, um, doesn't escape me. But I think we're in a political climate in the state of Missouri now. where We are a very, very red state, and we have a lot of people who get their information from um, skewed media sources, whether that's to the left or to the right. Um, and as a result of that, um, we have politicians or our, my, my colleagues, and, and sometimes myself, we're pandering to the voters as opposed to doing the need of what we promised to do to serve our communities when we came here. And hopefully we tracked the legislation um, from introduction uh, until the end of session. Uh, it ultimately was not uh, voted out of uh, committee, but was that due to any substantive issue or was that more procedural? And can you just describe essentially how uh, the bill flowed through the legislature? It definitely wasn't because of the substance of the bill. Um, when you are in a super minority, as we are here, um, then you, 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 you don't get to control a lot of what goes on. So it wasn't a priority uh, for um, those who, um, who, I mean, I, I guess safely to say the powers that be, it wasn't like a priority. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the bill substantively. And I think it's something that we actually need. There is, I will say, kind of a, a, um, here, they don't like a lot of studies for some reason, whether that is um, task force that address issues or um, resolutions that will uh, actually help us uh, in the future. That seems to be like weirdly something that we don't want to support. Um, in fact, you know, we're cutting funding to organizations that um, in fact do that type of work, not necessarily in the healthcare arena, but um, in in general. So I think the biggest thing is the climate that we're in. Um, I would even say that um, before President Trump, um, it would may, may have a better chance of at least having a, a more um, in-depth discussion than what we were able to have this year. Because of the importance of this issue, do you have plans to pursue this bill again next session? And how would you suggest that we go about collectively, you know, you yourself and then us also at Health Forward and even folks, you know, in the community that are listening to this podcast, how would you suggest that we go about gaining some traction for the bill and gaining some additional support amongst uh, lawmakers and the larger community? Well, I think one is we pre-file it so that it's filed early in the year. Um, things that are filed earlier have more of an opportunity to move through the process. Um, we did get like a public hearing, but we didn't move forward. And that was a lot of that was timing. Um, so filing it early, having conversations with the chair, uh, Dr. Onder, who's a senator from St. Charles County, uh, to, to, you know, have conversations with him now or over the interim. 
on the importance. Um, he is a physician, so he does understand the segregation of information. In fact, he's an asthma and allergy physician. And so that is probably an industry or an area where um, this type of uh, process with this bill is helpful. I'm sure that he knows that there are things that are different in us, whether we, um, by our ethnic uh, ethnicities um, with respect to allergies and asthma. And so I think, you know, just having more education for himself and the other members of the committee uh, early would help us kind of move through. This um, information is, 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 is what we need. Um, I think ethnicity, race, and primary language are not something that the people here necess that the majority really cares about here, um, especially primary language, because automatically they're going to assume Spanish. Um, and there's a whole nother conversation with respect to that. But um, the last four, which were gender identity, age, disability status, and socioeconomic status, are something that I think we can push forward. And if we can get those four elements pushed forward, then we can get the information for the top three as well. But again, I think it's something that we've kind of started the conversation by having uh, a hearing. We just need to move forward with getting more support from, uh, from the chair, which is Dr. Ander. So I'd be more than willing to work with anyone uh, as to having a conversation with him, um, maybe coming down, um, maybe folks coming down during veto session, having a meeting with him, which would definitely um, help him understand and help him prepare and make it a priority for 2022. Thank you so much, Senator Washington, for um, not only shedding light on um, this issue and why it's important to the Kansas City region and the state as a whole, but also uh, giving us uh, more insight into the, the process uh, so that we could be more successful as we pursue this legislation next session. And thank you for having me and thank you for Health Forward and all that you do. Our third and final guest on this episode is Victor Rubin, who is now a senior fellow at PolicyLink, but he's held 20 years worth of positions uh, there as director and as vice president. And Victor, if you wouldn't mind, just giving us a little bit of your background uh, and work that you've done at PolicyLink. Well, thank you, McLean. I, I have been at PolicyLink for 21 years now. I joined about two years after Angela Glover Blackwell got the organization going. And I was the director and then the vice president for research until uh, two and a half years ago when I semi-retired and took on the senior fellow role. Um, Sarah Trueheft, whose work with the National Equity Atlas we'll talk about later, is now the Vice President for Research. I'm an urban planner by trade, a consultant, a teacher, uh, and at PolicyLink in particular, I did a lot of applied research and writing about the social determinants of health, starting with that very basic question, why does one's zip code determine so much about one's health outcomes from life expectancy on down and uh, wrote a number of reports, got very connected to people working on food justice, working on health in the built environment, and all the different ways that we could see how um, good thinking, clear thinking, looking upstream 
could be turned into policy change and what we could learn from the local activists and leaders like those in your own organization in Kansas City who do that sort of thing. So I take an urban planner's perspective on it. I take the perspective of someone who has a strong belief that um, more data used in the right way will make a big difference. And I'm happy to see PolicyLink have um, put into practice all the ways in which that could work. And we, we certainly appreciate um, all of the work that you and PolicyLink have put in on this uh, subject in particular. Uh, this has been a three-part podcast. We first talked to a local public health official, uh, then talked to a state policymaker, and now we're talking to you to round out the conversation and get a, a national perspective. Can you tell us a bit more about why PolicyLink has embarked in this work and uh, what led you to hone in on the issue of data disaggregation uh, for public health. I think this goes back to our original interest in why place matters for health. We actually wrote a paper called Why Place Matters in 2007. And then another one four or five years later for the California Endowment and some Robert Wood Johnson, some other foundations called Why Place and Race Matter. And the core idea was to understand how the social determinants of health, as they were often called at that time, mattered for everything from food security to chronic diseases to uh, environmental justice and the health implications to life expectancy. What difference did it make where you lived and what kind of community for your health outcomes? And that led us to develop a whole set of uh, relationships and partnerships and strategies about improving the built environment, about addressing environmental injustice, and about food security and a range of other things. And as we got deeper into this, we kept seeing, um, how can I put this politely, attempts to explain away big differences by race by saying it was just a function of income. It was just about how much um, money people made. That would, if you looked at that, it would determine all of these outcomes. And it wasn't so. And as we were developing this, people with far more research, detailed research capacity and time and patience than us were digging into these issues of race and health. And the field was just expanding and people were understanding all of these different issues of what we now call uh, cultural competence or cultural humility in healthcare services and implicit bias and ways in which different outcomes for um, African-Americans than whites persist despite education and income or ways in which um, environmental injustices are very, very highly correlated with the racial composition of neighborhoods, not simply with the incomes. Of the, and almost everywhere you go, there are ways to learn about race and so that led us to um, a need to say, how can we put the best data in the hands of the local leaders that we we work with and that we want to work with? And over a number of years, we developed both a number of health, uh, let's call them social determinants of health studies about food and about, about um, the built environment and places and transportation. And then we began developing the National Equity Atlas, which became the central focus of our uh, way of disaggregating data by race, not only about health, but economic development and other things. And then the third leg of that stool is what I'll call 
data disaggregation below the level of race, because if you are Asian American, you know that that is a global term that masks enormous differences in in nationality, language, culture, lived experience in the United States. And that to understand someone's health, you don't need to know whether they're Asian American. You need to know if they're Korean or they're Hmong or they're Cambodian, if they're native born or immigrant, what sort of um, lived experience they have with the built environment and with the healthcare system. Same for Latinx population, same for the incredible diversity of indigenous tribes, more than 530 federally recognized Native American tribes and so forth. So we went from health and place and race to all the ways that we could disaggregate race in large data sets with the National Equity Atlas. And then in the last few years to understanding these sub-racial categories about culture and language and nationality. Um, and now we're happy to see those things getting picked up by all kinds of organizations. I, um, you know, I, I thought I was a student of your work uh, and just having read uh, some of the reports uh, that you you referenced, but hearing you talk about it, uh, I, I was just completely drawn in um, by everything that you were saying because it's really, you know, the backdrop to the work that we're doing in public health and we're hamstrung in our ability to really move forward and, and make any um, headway in reducing these disparities without uh, having the data that you talked about. Um, just curious, uh, you talked about you know some of the work that you've done. Are there recommendations that stem from your work, uh, any of the projects that you've led or been a part of at PolicyLink um, that, that really get to the root of the importance of better disaggregated data and that outlines a pathway towards successful changes in critical public policies and institutional practices. Wow, there's a lot to different directions to go with that. But I actually wanted to mention, uh, just as I was preparing for this, I went to the webpage for the National Equity Atlas, which I've referred to, which I encourage the listeners to look at. And for every part, and this was in the life expectancies indicator. There's a data in action and a few case studies of local or regional policymakers who are using this kind of data. And so I go there and by sheer coincidence, or maybe it's all part of a master plan, the example is the Kansas City CHIP, the Community Health Improvement Planning Process, which I know Health Forward is actively involved in. I saw some of your names and I, I can see it's a very well-grounded and well-represented process intended to look at systemic racism, at structural factors in health, in all the ways that we were talking about. And I just glanced at it. I did not read it all to see whether all the data sources in there are all the ones that could be possible. But I was just uh, really delighted to come across that in the last few days. It was just published a month or two ago. So I can see that you are right on top of it and it looks to be as um what's the word conscious as any of the local or regional efforts that i've seen so that sort of thing is definitely on the right track and to be comprehensive about the range of upstream issues that you need to deal with in public health and to take a racial equity lens to it is important um so in general i would say a couple things one when we published 
race and why race and place matter in 2011. It was to help inform the start of what became called the Building Healthy Communities Initiative of the California Endowment. And it's on my mind because three days ago, that group, 10 years later, held their 10th anniversary, their big closing celebration. Even over Zoom, we all managed to have a really good time and, and toast each other and, and watch um, how 14 local community-led organizations supported by the endowment for a full decade had moved from um, examination of race and place in their respective communities, and these are urban and rural places around California, to a focus on community organizing and building power for policy change. And every racial and ethnic a group in California, largely represented in these 14 groups, and a very, very strong focus on um, organizing, whether it's about getting parks um, budgets uh, spent in an equitable manner or getting halal food for Muslim students in the schools in the community, or it's about overcoming a longstanding environmental um, pollution source or any number of other things, but the key to it was community organizing. And every activity they did was grounded in good racially disaggregated data about who was suffering, how things were um, distributed both at the community level and how the problems were playing out both at the community level and the individual level, and a very elaborate data system that the endowment set up. So it really all flowed from that. And they used the National Equity Atlas um, throughout that work. So that that was really a nice reminder that no matter where you start with the data, you're going to need more throughout, but you're going to, the heart of this is going to be community organizing. And the other thing I noticed about it is that a lot of grassroots people, working people without a lot of education, have learned how to work with the data, in many cases become community health care workers or become uh, data collectors and become involved in the analysis of the data about their communities. Um, many of these places, almost everybody is of the same background, but some of the others are quite heterogeneous. They're quite diverse and therefore people get to learn about each other's communities in the course of doing it. So that was actually the first thing that came to mind. I know it's fairly broad with respect to the type of policies that um, but the other thing I'll mention now, I, I mentioned Asian Americans as a block um, having statistics and health that mask differences. Uh, the Asian Pacific Island American Health Forum has been spearheading an effort that we started with Robert Wood Johnson and others to get health data about Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders disaggregated by culture and country of origin. And the example they always use is about health insurance. If you look at every nationality and look at the percentage of Americans of different Asian nationalities with lacking health insurance, it's all over the map. It might, without, it might range from 15 or 20% all the way up to 50 or 60%. And the average will tell you nothing. And the differences are not just about income. The highest turned out to be Korean Americans, and it wasn't about income. It was about their high rate of self-employment. And until you get disaggregated data, you can't go forward on, in this case, the Affordable Care Act or anything else. I um, 
I'm really just taking it all in uh, as you talk. And I, um, I'm on the advisory board for the Network for uh, Public Health Law and spoke with some members of the staff about our interest in this issue. Uh, and, and it all came about because they mentioned that they're also doing some work uh, in this area as well. And when they pointed me to uh, examples of, of states uh, that are headed in the right direction, uh, there were two. Uh, and California uh, was one of them. And they mentioned um, a state statute that is specific to Asian Americans. And now I better understand why uh, they were focused on specifically in, in this legislation. I, I bet it doesn't help that they're also you know, in the same state as uh, PolicyLink and uh, California Endowment as well. And it also related to um, one of your responses. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're proud of uh, the work of the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department and uh, what they've done with the CHIP. Uh, Wyandotte County also has a uh, very robust CHIP uh, that, you know, recognizes the social and political influences of health to the degree um, needed. And uh, one of our other guests on this episode was Julian Van Lu, uh, the Director of Public Health for the Unified Government of, of Wyandotte County. But just curious, it seems as though, um, you know, outside of California and the other example that I was given, uh, that a lot of this work is occurring on the local level. Uh, we are working with a state legislator in Missouri on state legislation and just wondering what efforts can and should be made on, on the state level? Does it necessarily need to start at the local level? And then with the groundswell growing, then you'll have the momentum necessary for uh, some state mandates or just any recommendations that you have uh, related to that question. Sure. I'm, I'm wondering whether the other state anybody mentioned was Minnesota. It was. It was. See? Okay. Well, that's a good news, bad news story, because if there were 10 or 15 of them, it wouldn't be such an easy guess. But um, <laughs> um, part of that springs from the rapid growth of the Latinx population in Minnesota and the diversity of the Asian Pacific Islander population that gets at the same points that um, were raised in California. I hear good things about Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and a few other states. But the general point uh, comes back to this group I mentioned a little earlier, the Asian Pacific Islander American Health Forum, along with several other groups like the National Congress of American Indians and I think the Urban League. I don't have the exact um, uh, groups in front of me, but um, they all have uh, a combined project, and I'm trying to pull something up while we talk, to focus on advocacy for state policy for data disaggregation. Um, here it is, if I might. Um, it's, that's literally what it's called, advocating for data disaggregation by race and ethnicity. If people go to the uh, Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum, I realize that's a long name. They're based in Oakland and in Washington. You'll find that site and then you'll see a short report they produced just a few weeks ago with the other groups for Robert Wood Johnson. And it goes into all the details of state-by-state state advocacy to advance this work. Um, they got together initially during our previous project with Robert Wood Johnson, which resulted in a report on our website in 2018. And it's a great way to follow up. 
The other follow-up activity was a group of health surveillance survey managers, and that's managed out of UCLA, the Center for Health Policy Research, and they look for ways to improve the details of the procedures for asking about race on health-related surveys. So those two groups, and many of those surveys are statewide. So those two things are moving um, moving ahead um, in ways that um, I think are going to yield uh, more states with uh, – with that kind of the kind of action that you see in, in Minnesota and in California. So using COVID is probably our, our, our best uh, example in, in recent history. Can you talk about um, how the lack of disaggregated public health data has affected uh, the ability to have a, a measured and really an effective public health response or even how COVID has shed light on the importance of having disaggregated public health data. It's actually, yeah. Um, what we do have some, and we see it in the in the newspapers every day, and in the work of health equity advocates, some uh, evidence of how COVID has disproportionately affected um, communities of color. And sometimes that's because the data directly asks about race and, and then is reported. And sometimes it might just be indirect. That is, it asks people's addresses. And then you say that's a predominantly Latinx neighborhood or predominantly African-American neighborhood. And we learn indirectly. Or we might know something about the racial composition of workers in a given industry, whether it's a meatpacking plant or bus drivers. And then we know that they're... Um, they have had a higher uh, case rate. But the more we get individual level data, the more we get good reporting that allows us to understand at a granular level, the more we're able to address the underlying reasons for those disparities. But I actually think the last year has given the general public a much better understanding that the workforce is so heavily racialized in different jobs and that the working conditions or the living conditions that lead people to not be able to protect themselves are so racialized that it's actually a case where disaggregated data has been largely um, uh, brought into the public consciousness. And the, the trick is to actually collect more of it and be able to do more with it. Thank you so much, Victor, for, um, shedding light on why disaggregated public health data is so important uh, for informing us of what we're doing well in Health Forward's service area uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, as well as, you know, what's going on in other states uh, so that we're aware of what we could be doing to help further um, our efforts along. Uh, and, and, and get some interest amongst our state legislators on, on this issue. We intend to uh, go after it again next session and introduce uh, what should be more robust and better thought out um, uh, legislation or a bill in partnership with um, an ally in the state legislature uh, to require data disaggregation, uh, but know that we'll be reviewing uh, the policy link resources that you mentioned and then the other resources that you mentioned 
during the course of this conversation as well. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, you answered the question so well and gave us so much information. If there's anything else though that you'd like to say before we end this episode, I'd invite you to do so. The only thing that occurs to me is that a lot of times the advocates for doing this kind of data desegregation for health will find common cause with folks who are wanting to do it for educational equity and educational access. So in those states that we mentioned, there were bills um, to desegregate health data, but there were also bills to desegregate um, uh, uh, particularly access to higher education. And again, the incredible diversity within the Asian community and the uh, Latinx community was one of the motivations. But a lot of the logic is the same, and there may even be reasons, strategic reasons at the state legislative level to want to um, combine those two things. Um, and there was one other thing. In the uh, years leading up to the 2020 census, there was a tremendous amount of energy focused on data disaggregation by the census staff, by all the leading social scientists and demographers, and by the activists like the ones I've mentioned and many, many others. And there was a 11 department federal interagency task force on how to classify race and ethnicity in federal data systems not only the census, but all the health surveys. They put forward a tremendously helpful set of recommendations in 2019, would have changed the way we categorize Middle Eastern, North African folks. It would have improved the Latino, Hispanic data collection and a variety of other things. The Trump administration tabled it, never acted on it and let the deadlines go by so that the 2020 census did not reflect any of these ideas for new and best practices. They're still out there and, you know, it may seem like a funny time to talk about this, but it's not too early to start thinking about the 2030 census. It's not too early to start thinking about improving all the health surveillance surveys that the federal government supports and all the other data sources so that data disaggregation can be fully realized. Um, so there's a whole network of people out there just ready to be mobilized again, I guess I would say. And maybe there's a more congenial environment for that now. Yeah, um, I'm happy to have uh, been able to talk with you about it. And um, as, as you said, I think state legislative activity works best when there are local leaders who are setting the pace and working with the legislators and their staff. So it sounds like you're set up to do that well. We appreciate you so much for all of the good work, the great work that you've done on this issue and for taking the time to speak with us today as we're, we're learning, uh, as well as, you know, attempting to make some strides in, in Kansas and Missouri. So thank you so much for your time. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to our three guests who joined us on this episode. Julianne Van Lu, the Director of Public Health for the Unified Government of Wyandotte County, Senator Barbara Washington, a Missouri State Senator, as well as Victor Rubin, Senior Fellow with Policy Link. We appreciate you all for the insights that you provided on this very important topic in Health Board's policy agenda and one where we intend to continue to work to introduce and advance legislation that requires disaggregated public health data. You've been listening to Forward Focus from Health Forward Foundation. 
This was the final episode of our policy podcast series, and we're excited for you to hear what we have planned for future seasons. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you've been hearing or want to share an idea, send an email to communications at healthforward.org or find us on Twitter at healthforwardkc. Thanks for listening.